1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers, exiles, as other translations say, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, modern-day Turkey. It seems like a lot of your New Testament letters are all written to churches in, in Turkey. And that's because that's where the church went, yeah. Um, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God, or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into, the re- into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And I will stop right there. January the 18th. Does that date ring a bell at all? I think it's the third Monday of January. January the 18th. Drum roll. It, it happens to be scientifically proven the most depressing day of the calendar year, Right? It is the day when people's credit cards are maxed out. It's the, um, it's the day when you know, sunlight is still nearly at a minimum. Um, you know, financial indebtedness at, at a peak. Sunlight at a minimum. Resolutions, New Year resolutions, uh, have started already to be broken by the 18th of January. It's called Blue Monday. Scientifically proven to be the most depressing day of the year. Only it's not. It's... It turns out it's just pure pseudoscience. Blue Monday was first publicized in the year 2005 by, get this, a travel agency. (laughs) They just, they came up with with this idea in order, it's entirely a product of the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, if you you went to New New Zealand and, and said, you know that January 18th is the most depressing day of the year, they would laugh at us, right? But it it was the creation of a travel agency to try to get people to, to head to sunnier destinations. I say that, um, in all honesty, we, we know that January is a pretty tough time in Boise. You look outside today, and it, maybe the sun will peek its head out. Yesterday was glorious. The reason I chose to do a sermon series in First Peter, do you know anything about the book? Do you know what this book is about? Well, it turns out this book is all about how to handle the tragedies, the sufferings, the trials of life, which is an appropriate topic at any time for us to speak on. It seems like it's especially appropriate to do so in January. Peter here is writing to these churches. As I said, they're up in modern-day Turkey, and he's writing. They're under heavy duress, heavy persecutions, their, their life is a lot harder than it is, than our lives are. But nevertheless, sufferings and difficulties and trials, it doesn't matter what century you're talking about. It's always an issue. It's always uh, a Christian issue to consider. He says, do not be, uh, do not be 
surprised by the fiery ordeal that is about to come upon you. The fiery ordeal. He speaks about life as a furnace. We already talked about Isaiah 43 and how you know, going into the furnace. How is it that one person can go into the furnace of affliction and, be, and come out you know, burned to a crisp, just a charcoal cinder, Another person can go into the furnace of affliction and they get purified like, like gold does. They come out not only not bitter or cynical or you know, narrow, but they have a greater sense of purpose in life. They're more humble. They're more in tune to the Lord Jesus. How is it that two different people can go in and experience almost identical sufferings and afflictions and yet come out with two entirely different outcomes? That is what First Peter is going to uh, explore. That's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. Today we get a partial answer to that question, and the answer is one of those people have a living hope. So there's three things that I want to teach you this morning. The source of the living hope, number one. The nature of the living hope, number two. The promise of the living hope, number three. That's where we're going. Oops. The, the source of the living hope, number one. The source is God's mercy. The mercy of God. As I was reading through this, I wondered if you noticed the, the beginning of this letter is a mouthful. It's so typical of New Testament letters. The, the writers, they try and encapsulate all of salvation or all of the history of salvation and basically one long run-on sentence or one long run-on paragraph. They're trying to get everything out about God's salvation in Christ, either in a long prayer or, in this case, a long doxology. Now, let's see here. Verse 2, he says to these uh, church, these Christians who are elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ by sprinkling uh, through his, in his blood. I mean, that's a mouthful. But it's part of the, you know, the richness of the Christian gospel. It's, it's all of this, but it can be simplified in a sense to a single statement. The word that I want to focus on is the word chosen or elect. Okay, we're going to talk about the doctrine of predestination. If you don't believe in the doctrine of predestination, you're still welcome at our church, even, even though we do believe in it here. But I do want to pose this question to you. If, you. if you don't believe in the doctrine of election, why are you a Christian and your neighbor is not? Why are you a Christian and your neighbor is not? He said, well, I believed in Jesus, and my neighbor didn't, okay? Why did you believe in Jesus and your neighbor didn't? He said, well, because I, I was convicted of my sin. I, I, I repented of, of my sin. That's a good answer. But why did you repent of your sin and your neighbor didn't? Well, because I was, I guess I was a, a little more open-minded, a little more receptive to the message. Why were you more receptive to the message and your neighbor wasn't? See, that's, for me, the, when you talk about the doctrine of election, predestination, what it really comes down to is if you reject election, you have to inevitably say that the, the reason you are a Christian 
and your neighbor is not, it's because of the mercy of God and something else inside of you. Either you were more, a little more open-minded, you, you listened a little bit better, you, were, you had a more tender heart, whatever, whatever it is. The difference between me and my neighbor is the mercy of God plus something in me. Now, those of us who believe in the doctrine of election, that is just, that's the place we refuse to go. I, I refuse to believe that there is some, some quality in me that gives me like one leg up on my neighbor and ultimately makes, makes me, uh, it gives me one iota of, of advantage over my neighbor. No, it's the mercy of God is the ground of everything. It's, it's, the, it's the source of, the, of all of our, our Christianity. Another small indicator that it's the mercy of God, that the sovereign mercy of God is being spoken about in this passage. Look with me in verse 3. It says, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. His mercy leads to a new birth. Do, do babies get to determine when they get born? I mean, does it... Did they, is that how you did it, or is that how I did it? October the 7th, I said, I am going to greet the world today. <laughs> All right, Mom, here we go. We're going to cooperate in this. You push, and, and I'll make myself tiny and, and like a pencil. Do, do babies get to choose? No, of course not. Being born is something that happens to you. It, it's entirely something, I guess you'd say, out of your control. When the Bible talks about salvation as a new birth, it, it's, it's something that happens to you, just like mercy happens to you. The mercy of God is the ground of why you and I are Christians and our neighbor is, is not. I know that when people hear the doctrine of election, they, we do have questions and concerns. Like, you know, why is it that God chooses some and not others? Why, if God was capable of saving anybody and everybody, why didn't, why didn't he go out and get everybody and, and anybody? The answer to that question is, I don't know. But when we get to the end of our days, and we're standing before the throne, and we get an opportunity to ask questions, and we get answers to those tough questions, one thing I guarantee you, the one thing I guarantee you is, you and I are not going to be questioning his mercy. We won't. I heard Tim Keller say this a while back. He says, you and I think we think we can come up with a more merciful scheme of salvation than God. We are kidding ourselves. The, the, the things that will remain all through eternity is the grace of God and the mercy of God. Those will be unquestionable. So that's number one. The source of the living hope that we have is God's mercy. It's the source of everything. Number two. The basis of our living hope is verse 3. We are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The, the basis of our living hope is the resurrection of Jesus. We need to take a step back for a minute. And the, when we talk in English about hope, the hope in English doesn't quite characterize what hope in the Greek means. And I don't like to drive a lot of wedges between Greek and, and English, but 
but I think you'll, you'll pick this up pretty quickly. When I say, I hope that I, I'll go to the gym later today, or when I say, I hope I will finish Les Mis, which is what I'm reading right now, within the next 14 months, <laughs> right? Pretty big. Um, whenever you say, I hope, in that context, in effect, it's, your sentence is followed by a question mark. Like, hope is something that you're really not entirely certain of. The other time we use the word hope is, hope is uh, some of our deepest desires. I hope for a better marriage in 2016. I hope for one of my kids who have abandoned the faith to come back to Jesus. I hope that my job will get... Whenever we say, I hope, in that sense, we're really detailing a wish list. The things that I really want to, to see happen. But as far as I can tell when I read the Bible, like the difficulty with those hopes is there's not any guarantee in the Bible that any of those hopes are going to be realized. The marriage, the kids, the job, or what, the loneliness, there's nothing, there's no ironclad promise that those, if that is our ultimate hope, then we certainly can expect disillusionment in 2016. When the Bible talks about hope, it talks about something that is certain. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, there was a movie that came out in 1996 called The Ghost in the Darkness with Michael Douglas and Val Kilmer. Anybody see that one? I, so our family tradition, well, our, it's sort of a family tradition, is on Halloween, we try to watch a scary movie. I tried to get a couple of the girls to watch The Ghost in the Darkness with me that, back in, uh, on Halloween this year, and none of them would. And then I found out that it's, isn't it a pretty gory? Is it gory? It's supposed to be very scary. It's the story of, and it's a true story, of lions preying upon workers in rural Africa as they're building, I guess it would have been a transcontinental railroad in, in Africa. True story. The ghost in the darkness happens to be the lions. Well, imagine you have a situation like that where you have a lion preying upon a village in a rural part of Africa. A man shows up uh, and he says, I'm going to take care of the lion. I, I'm going to vanquish the lion. At what point do the villagers know they're safe from the threat? At what moment do the villagers know they're, they're in the free and clear and life is, is going to be returned to normal? It's not when that man goes into the cave. It's when the guy comes, when he comes out of the cave. That's a perfect illustration, perfect image of, of Jesus, isn't it? How do you know that sin and death have been defeated and, and death has lost its sting and the, that death has been swallowed up in victory? It is only when a living, breathing, striding, confidently broad-shouldered man walks out of the cave, out of the tomb, and says, I'm alive again. That's when you know that, that you're really safe. That is what the Bible calls a living Probably all of the other hopes of this world are, are not living quite like that. I mean, my wish list is not a living hope. It's, it's, a, it's a living desire, maybe. My, um, my question mark about finishing Les Mis, that's not a living hope. The living hope is the livingness 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the basis, the, the basis of the hope. It's, it's in the resurrection. Notice then, go back with me to verse 3. This is a, a common Jewish prayer formula. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his mercy has given us new birth into a living hope. What he's basically doing in this long prayer, or doxology, is he's commemorating all of the great things that God has done that accomplishes our, our salvation. That's, when you read the, the Psalms, when you read other prayers and doxologies of the Old Testament, that's what they always did. They would commemorate or memorialize the great salvation that God had done. They, you read a, a psalm and it, Blessed be God for this creation of the heavens of the earth. Blessed be God for bringing Israel out of Egypt and taking her to the Red Sea and bringing her into a land of, of promise. Blessed be God for manna and quail and water from a rock. They're always memorializing, commemorating the great works of, of God's salvation. And they would sing this every day, and certainly every Saturday, every Lord's Day. That's worship. I mean, a huge part of worship is simply us rehearsing again and again the salvation of our God. I got to believe that the more you rehearse it, the more the intellectual coherence of the message sinks in, the more you begin to feel the hope emotionally. I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, I have, Jesus is, is out of the grave. It's another thing to really feel that powerfully. You rehearse it. So to that end, I have for you five New Year's resolutions. I'm actually a little ashamed because uh, resolutions, we break them so quickly. But here are five ways to help commemorate um, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ through your year. Number one, and this is the most important one, I think. Read your Bible before you log on to Facebook Get on to Twitter, read your email, read before you do, read your Bible before you enter into any of the rest of the stuff. Start there. Number two, if your family begin and stick to a pattern of daily family worship, it doesn't have to be sophisticated. Mom or dad prays, mom or dad reads scripture, mom or dad explains the scripture, mom and dad asks questions, you finish with the song. Make that a regular part. Number three, keep a daily prayer journal if you don't already because you're, you're, you're going to be reminded of how many prayers God actually answers if you record the ones that you asked. Number four, pray for opportunities to share your faith. The more you share your faith, when you see new believers come to Christ, that gives you confidence in the message of the gospel. And number five, Don't do anything you couldn't ask the Lord to bless in prayer, which is an ethical question. Don't do anything that you could not ask the Lord to to bless in prayer. The confidence of hope, or rather the basis of hope, is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Number three, finally, the promise of living hope is an eternal inheritance. Praise be to God who has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, verse 4, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
So what I want you to imagine here, we'll do a little thought experiment. Two people, imagine you have two people, person A and person B. You give them the same job. It's a terribly difficult job. 85 hours a week, 85, no benefits, no vacation. They got to work this job for an entire year. Person A, you tell them that at the end of the year, I'll pay you $30,000. Person B, you tell them I'll pay you $30 million. So what's the difference in the two? You know, person A is not going to have any stamina. There's not, they're not going to, they're going to say, I can't take this anymore. Eventually they start to crack and crumble. No, I, this is too hard for me. I can't take it anymore. This is, no, no more. Person B says, this is a breeze. <laughs> Man, this is easy street. 85 hours a week, no problem. What's the difference between the two? The difference is entirely their future. We as human beings are so controlled by our prospects for the future. When a person is going to say, I can't take this suffering. I can't take what God is calling me to go through. And another person says, this is a piece of cake. What I want you to to remember is, um, I don't know if you did this on New New Year's Eve, when you flip the calendar from 2015 to 2016. But as we flip the calendar and look ahead on this new year, we are reminded of a very simple but great truth, and that is we are closer. We are a whole lot closer to that day when we are closer to faith, finally giving way to sight. As we turn the calendar from 2015 to 2016, we are that much closer to the day when all of our temptations to sin finally give away to complete obedience. All of the pain that we experience in fractured relationships are healed. All of the tears over lost loved ones or dreams that never materialized or wiped away. All of the lurking shadows of evil are vanquished. All of the False teaching is muzzled. All of the divisions in the body of Christ finally get sorted out. I don't know if you thought about that as you watched the the apple drop in Times Square or as you watched the potato (laughs) drop in downtown Boise. And when it hits and there's the fireworks that go off, everybody raises the toast and you kiss the person next to you and Auld Lang Syne's playing. Did you... Stop and think for just a second. I'm closer. I'm closer to that day. And what is going to happen on that day? He says that, I, that there is an inheritance, verse 4, that is kept in heaven. An inheritance, which has to mean some, some form of, of great wealth and riches. An inheritance. Um, do you know what that inheritance is? We see of it, we see it in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. New heavens and a new earth. Heaven comes down to earth. It's not merely a spiritual inheritance, but it's an entire new, renewed creation inheritance. When heaven comes to earth, it finally makes this place the way that we know it, it ought to be. And notice how God spoke, speaks about it here. He says, Your inheritance can never perish spoil, or fade. What an image. And you are shielded, you who through faith, verse 5, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation 
that is ready to be revealed to you in the last time. Not only do you have an inheritance, but you're, you're shielded from disavowing that inheritance. I love this. Um, what is God shielding us from? Is he shielding us from the lions? The lion who goes about roaring and seeking to devour? Absolutely. Is he shielding us from enemies around and about? Absolutely. The number one thing he's shielding us from, I think, is ourselves. Our own stupidity to abandon the race, to abandon the fight, to disavow our inheritance. So our family and family worship recently has been going through some videos on the assurance of salvation. And I love what our own Westminster Confession has to say in, in chapter 17. It says, Believers can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Which is a kind of 16th century way of saying that you and I are on a rubber band. And as hard as we might try to run away from the Lord, he keeps snapping us back to him. We're shielded from ourselves, our own stupidity. We're on a giant rubber band. And even though we might temporarily say, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. I've given up. I've lost hope. I hate the church. I hate all of this. It's, it's God's power that shields us and brings us back to our, our senses. He is... Oh, I like how somebody put it. Your Christian faith is an eternal flame in you that cannot be put out. An eternal flame that cannot be put out. So let me f- conclude here by addressing two types of people. Um, one person who hears this message sees this language about being born again. What does it mean to be born again? You've heard some Christians, I'm a born again Christian. Uh, is that like especially a special conservative Christian who, who is very open to the charismatic gifts? Is that, no, I mean, when you read the Bible, you discover that every Christian, every true and legitimate Christian is, is born again. How do you know if you're born again? One of the ways you can illustrate this, or I'd illustrate it, is probably all of us have witnessed somebody going deaf like a grandmother or a grandfather, what are the signs that somebody's going deaf? They start talking too loud because they can't hear their own voice. Grandpa, you're shouting in the restaurant. It kind of embarrasses you. Please please keep it down a little bit. Another sign that somebody's going deaf is they'll look like they're following you and tracking with what you're saying, but you can tell that they really aren't getting it. You know what I'm talking about? Another example of this is, oh, what was it? It's, they, they laugh. When you tell a joke, they laugh, but they wait till everybody else laughs. There's like a delayed reaction in a lot of... Lot, so that's what's happening in that instance is the ears are, are going dead. The ears are dying. So what does it take for ears to be born again? <laughs> The miracle of hearing age or the miracle of some kind of hearing implant. But at, at that moment, when the ears come alive again, they can hear the sounds of the world. They can hear the music, the laughter, the rejoicing. All of that comes in and they take it. They take it in and it, it fills their insides. I don't, what a good illustration of being born again. What, the Bible says that we've got spirits inside of us that... 
that are dead, that naturally will read a passage like this and hear about Jesus and inheritance and salvation, say, yeah, big yawn. Ah, who cares? If that's how you feel, it could be because I'm just a boring preacher. <laughs> or, or it could be that you've got a broken soul that needs to be born again, that needs to be able to hear and take in and process spiritual truth. So ask God for that. Ask him for that. And the second person, so I said I wanted to address two kinds of people. The second person is the person that was kind of like me the last two Sundays. The last two weeks I was on vacation, as you probably know. We ended up worshiping at a couple of, some of the largest churches in Boise. It was a good experience. Um, But I asked myself the question when I went into worship on Sunday, what do I want to get out of worship today? What is my, what I'm, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And the, the honest answer to that question was, I want to go in and kind of fly under the radar and not see anybody that I know and not have any conversations. I want to go in and hope that the pastor, the preacher, the worship leader doesn't say anything that embarrasses the Christian faith. I want to go in and get this thing over as fast as possible because it's Kellen Moore Sunday. I wanted, because I wanted to go and, and watch the NFL. And my guess is that, that I'm not alone in that. Like, what do you really want to get out of worship when you come here to the first service on Sunday? Probably, maybe today, you're like, I just want to get this done with. I'm ready to be done And what you need is to recapture what really worship is. Worship is is acknowledging and singing and celebrating the greatness of the Lord. That's that's what, what you ought to come, what we ought to come with is this expectation. I'm here today to celebrate the greatness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the greatness of Jesus, to sing about his goodness, to read and take in his word. And um, my hope is that, I hope that, Verses 1 through 5 here give you a renewed reason to celebrate the greatness of of his mercy and his grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Amen.